Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, the summer rally rolls on. Stocks shrugging off weak manufacturing and housing data here at home and disappointing economic numbers over in China. The major average is finishing higher ahead of a wave of retail earnings on tap. Plus, sports spinoff hedge fund billionaire Dan Lope pushing Disney to spin off ESPN after buying a stake in the company. He also wants more buybacks and cutbacks. The Disney response and potential next steps coming up. And later, still time to buy a look at some of the big cap boomers. From PayPal to Netflix to Ford, who have been crushing it, now the question is, can you still post profits if you get in now? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money, live from the Nasdaq market site. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and Jeff Mills. And we start off tonight with a slowdown shrug off. Major markets managing another day of gains, even as data on housing and manufacturing came in weaker than expected. The S&P up four-tenths of a percent, the Dow rising for a fourth straight day, closing above its 200-day moving average for the first time since April. The Nasdaq posting its highest close in nearly four months. But with a slew of retailers reporting this week, as well as more data on the housing market, can this momentum continue? Tim Seymour, fresh Hello. back from vacation. Nice You've been be away here. for a week. You've got, gained some perspective. So I'm not you, sure. Well, what do you think of where we are right now? We all rallied this thing pretty hard. And, and I think the tailwinds from disinflation. So off that CPI, I was at, you know, at, a, at a kilt on and bagpipes in my hand in Scotland. No, I didn't. Um, I just told you I didn't. Um, but, but when I looked into that CPI number, clearly def- the deflationary tailwind from uh, that dynamic, I think what you're getting also in terms of uh, finished goods prices and, and the market feels that this is uh, coupled with on a day like today when you got really not uh, like a terrible New York number, a not great housing survey, and then China cuts because their economy really needs to do some, you know, some, some major boosting. This is a dynamic that actually the equity markets have enjoyed. And we've all done this math. I mean, 18 and a quarter percent on the S&P off those intraday lows. Uh, Semis are up 29.5 percent in 29 sessions from July 5th. So um, this is a dynamic that I think doesn't really weave in uh, EPS dynamics from what was a pretty good second quarter. But uh, again, I I think less Fed and, and, and the CPI dynamics are what from afar is what this market did. And I'll just say this is a market, though, that behaves as if the Fed put is in play. This is a market that's behaving like the market we knew last year. And that's what's interesting to me, because uh, the positioning for uh, the investor base, I think, for the last six to nine months is maybe as much to do with the market's rally as anything. Yeah. I mean, Mike Wilson's out with a note today saying basically that where we are right now is very different because from an interest rate, from a policy, from an earnings perspective, excuse me, we are in a very, very different place. And yet here we are sitting at these levels, Dan, and we're about to get a more real-time read on the U.S. consumer than that CPI print that we rallied off of yet. Yeah, and I'll, listen, I'll just say this. I mean, we've all been doing this a long time. This is not that surprising. If you think that the S&P was going to maybe correct and it was going to go somewhere in the mid-3,000s and it almost gets there, and then you say, oh, well, it could get back up to 4,200, it's going to overshoot. I mean, that's the way this stuff does, and it doesn't line up with the data precisely. And Tim just mentioned Q2 earnings, and I think when you focus on those major names, the huge components of the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, they were 
were clearly better than a lot of people had feared. But then when you brought it out, okay, and then you take out energy, there was not a lot of great stuff. There was not a lot of really good visibility. And then now you piece it together with some of this data that we're seeing. And Tim used the term disinflation. So we're seeing, you know, inflation. That's a tailwind. You know, yeah. So, so, so fine. So, but no one's saying mission accomplished yet. No one's oh. going to put their faith that the Fed nailed the landing because there's a lot more that has to happen. I think what's different also, if you think back to 2008 coming out of the financial crisis, I mean, China and what they were going to do as far as spending was really a huge tailwind. If you think about it, we don't have that right now. We don't have Europe. We have, you know, it's not just this housing data that's rolling over now. We also have a scenario where small business um, CEO confidence is really low. So again, don't be fooled by what the stock market has done in the summer after a sustained downturn like we had. I guess I'd focus a little bit more on what the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is doing or not doing because at 278, it's really suggesting that we're going to be well below the sort of growth that people all would expect with an S&P 500 that's raging. So to me, I think I'm a little bit more bearish on the stock market than I am on the economy. I just think that the market has shot too far too fast. Okay. I agree with Dan on this one. I'll say I think what the market is trying to do is say, hey, Federal Reserve, we see the data coming out and it's miserable. Obviously, today's data was miserable. And we don't think you can continue this rate hike cycle in the wake of or in the face of what's been really poor data. And we're just going to keep pushing the envelope here on the buy side and equities, which I sort of get. By the way, on the flip side of that, they've trotted out all kinds of people from the Fed to suggest quite the opposite, that, you know what, inflation's still our main concern and we're going to do everything we can to combat it. And they're the battle lines. But, you know, I think the Fed will win out on this one in terms of having to continue this rate height cycle. And I don't think the market's going to like it. And, oh, by the way, which I love to say, we haven't even started QT yet, and that starts in September. So let's see how the market reacts to that. So... I think this, this, look, I thought it would stop at 4,200. We're at 4,300 now, but I think it's too much too fast, and I think it's discounting everything the Fed's trying to do. Jeff Mills, are you going to round out the caution on the panel tonight about the markets? Yeah, I guess so. And we're all saying it in different ways, but I, I think the bottom line is that you know, the catalyst for this latest market move is this Fed pivot. It is interest rates going from 350 to where we are today. It is this peak inflation narrative. And look, I've been fairly bearish and, and negative for you know, a number of months now. And I'll say this, the inflation peaking narrative, the slowing, that's clearly a positive, right? I, I think it reduces the fears of some sort of 1970s type issue. It reduces the fears of a super aggressive Fed, maybe the severity of a GDP contraction, which I think we do get. But what the Fed needs to see is a sustained drop in inflation. They need to be convinced of that, and they're going to keep hiking until that happens. And I just don't think they're going to see what they need to see until they hike us into probably a recession or, at the very least, you know, a very noticeable and impactful S&P 500 earnings slowdown. You know, we've gone from 252 now to 243 for 2023 earnings. So ultimately, that's going to impact valuations. I don't think that, you know, given the fact that the Fed's tightening, growth is slowing, unemployment claims are moving in the wrong direction, I don't know how high of a multiple this market can carry. Uh, so again, that's still what leaves me with a, a fair bit of caution here. 
I, I, you know, I know we're going to talk with Peter Bookvar in, in a bit about recession or no recession. I, I think the, the, the key here is the Fed's job cannot be done. And, and so yeah. you know, they, they almost have no choice. I'm not going to say then to hike us into recession. I'll just simply say um, we haven't even really slowed down the labor market. And that's the dynamic that I think the Fed really has to work on at this point, because uh, I, I think we've seen peak, you know, peak finished goods inflation. I think we've seen uh, ag prices are rolling over. Uh, and I'll just say this about second quarter earnings. And I'll say this about the market. Really, where we are now is a function of where we thought we were going to be. Second quarter earnings were much better than expected, but it doesn't mean that actually when you strip away the energy sector, you actually had a 3 or 4% earnings contraction in the second quarter. So for everyone that says this was great, it was much better than expected. And, and so when I talk about a market that, you know, we went into this pullback in markets saying everything that, that you know, we, I think is right, which is there's no Fed put in place. QT hasn't even started. And, and, and what happens to a market and a consumer when, when you hike you know, 350 basis points in, the, in, in as fast as the Fed has done uh, in, in decades? And I think that's, that's really the key. I, I think we've all said this about the labor market. It, it's hard to believe that we didn't hit peak labor. Um, I don't think the job market's going to fall apart. But what we're hearing from every CEO these days, and we're hearing it from uh, you know a couple of companies we're going to talk about later in the show, I mean, cutting jobs yeah. is really what they want to do. Yeah. I mean, that's what Bill Dudley told Steve Leisman today, that yeah. we haven't seen the full impact and that we will see unemployment take higher. It is going, it is inevitably the side effect of what the Fed is doing. And we may think that we're seeing some of those shoots right now, but we haven't seen the full impact. Well, it might be really good for margins, too. I mean, prior to the mm-hmm. pandemic, if you think about it, one of the big concerns was automation and what that was going to do to a job market that was already at a 40-year low. We had unemployment at 3.6% before um, the pandemic. And if you don't think that the lessons learned, and we heard this from companies like Airbnb, uh, you know, lots of different companies. Not like a good like, crisis, well, right? Right. To, right. To, to lean yeah. up the balance sheet and, and get and, the margins. And, and that's exactly it. And I think a lot of these companies actually invested in automation, invested in some of these processes, thinking about about how to do remote work, having less physical plant, that sort of thing. So again, I mean, maybe this is a trend that we see over the next decade or so, but all of the, well, not all of it, but a lot of those wage gains that we saw over the last year, year and a half, were on the lower end. These were jobs that were gonna be automated away. How many segments in McDonald's, Tim, did we hear over the last 10 years about you going in there and, and ordering Look, from I, a I, machine? You know what I, I mean? I, that's Jones, I Jones for a happy meal. But, 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 and, and I got a chance to do it on the front line but, but, and t- actually learn how they've, they've gotten back. Yeah. And to Dudley's point, though, is that if you see unemployment go from 3.6 to 4% in the next year or so, that will be devastating to a consumer where they're already seeing their savings rate go down, consumer credit going up, and really pulling away a lot of that fiscal stimulus that has helped a great deal keep that consumer afloat. So, Guy, how would you say to trade, or, or maybe you say don't trade, the sort of game of chicken that the markets have with the Fed? I mean, the market is betting that the Fed is not going to lean so hard as to push us into a deep recession. And that's sort of the bet going right. on here, that we can float higher. Yeah. Look, yeah, and that's been the right bet recently, without question. I mean, I think across the board, we thought 4,200 was sort of a foregone conclusion we got there. This, to me, is now the overshoot. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, even if you were to say $220 worth of S&P earnings, which I think is a bit of a pipe dream, now you have a market trading close to 20 times, which I think in this environment we will all say is a little expensive. So I'm not suggesting valuation is rich. I just think it's now flipped back the other way. By the way, consumer credit card debt in the United States approaching, if not through, $1 trillion for the first time ever. No bueno, especially if uh, if job cuts are coming. So I just can't wrap my head around a bullish scenario. The bullish scenario right now is the worse the data gets, the more bullish people seem to get. That's somewhat counterintuitive to me in this environment. 
Well, our next guest warns the U.S. is on a collision course with a recession. Peter Bookbar is the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, good to have you with us. You say there's three stages in a bear market. We're only in the middle right here. Right. So the first one is evaluation adjustment, which we clearly have seen. The second one is the economic impact uh, and also the earnings impact of a slowdown. And then the third one is, is when everyone throws in the towel. And I can argue that we're really just beginning the first phase of, of part number two, where growth is slowing and we're beginning to see the impact on earnings, particularly profit margins. And I think this still has a, a ways to go to work through uh, door number two. Peter, it's, it's Tim. So independent of necessarily what they're going to do, what do you want the Fed to do? You're someone that's been critical for a long time about the Fed's transitory language and other such folly. And, and, and so wouldn't it be great news to see the Fed continue to hike and push us into recession? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> teeing you up for the answer that may not be the one you want to give. Well, I, I think Powell wants to get to 3 percent, which we, he'll get with a 50 basis point increase in September. And then he can even calibrate it down to 25 basis points thereafter. So I don't think there's necessarily the right level of the Fed funds rate that's gonna get to some magic level of lower inflation because we just don't really know uh, once you get above three. Because when you look at previous rate hiking cycles, it was lower and lower levels of a Fed funds rate that started to break things. It was two and a quarter, two and a half that did so in the fourth quarter of 2018. And previously it was higher than that, but each successive rate hiking cycle ended before the previous one because something broke. So now we start getting into dangerous territory where things are at risk of breaking. But the important thing also is this balance sheet reduction that is only barely just begun. And I still like to separate out the interest rate increases that impact negatively the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, like housing that we saw today, and it's already slowing autos. And then QT, which will have a direct impact on financial conditions and the, uh, the markets. And I think Melissa made a great point just before, saying that the markets really are playing a game of chicken with the Fed. Uh, but it's the same playbook. Oh, maybe the Fed is going to be done raising interest rates soon because inflation is topping out. Therefore, you got to buy. And, and I think people are not being sensitive enough to this economic slowdown and what it's going to mean for corporate earnings and profit margins. Hey, Peter, Jeff Mills here. So based on this environment that we're describing, how would you tell our viewers to be positioning right now? I mean, are you still looking to play the momentum of some of the growth stocks that we've seen lately? Is it more on the value side? Where, where do you think the opportunity is? It's more on the value side. Uh, I'm still pretty bullish on commodities generally, acknowledging the pullback because of worries about the demand side, but still very bullish on the supply side challenges. And I think value is still going to well outperform growth. I think the valuations in, in growth stuff, even with these declines, are still rather expensive, where there's still a lot of forgotten value names that have already had low expectations already embedded in them. Peter, great to see you. Thanks. 
Peter Thank Bookmar you. of Bleakly. Uh, Dan? I love Peter's work, and I've followed it for a very long time. Um, I would say this, but, though. If, no, the, the but is this. Okay. If, if, <laughs> if, if, the, if we're done going down, let's say we have another test like somewhere like 3,600, 3,700 or whatever, and then everything holds, right? The same stuff that I think led us in the, in the last leg of the bull market, I think is the stuff that's going to lead. Like, I'm not going to want to go to value. I'm going to want to go to perceived value, the sort of like, like stocks. The, well, I think, those, I think those, but I think it's the stuff that's down 60, 70, 80%. The quality names, like a PayPal. Some of the names that we've been talking about over the last few months, I just think that's where you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck. Well, in that first not stage. No, well, yeah, no, not, not value. But what I'm saying is I don't want to go to energy. I don't want to go to financials or home builders or stuff like that. I want to go to the stuff that was working really well in 2020, 2021, the stuff that I think is going to be around in three, five, ten years. Yeah. Jeff, you still, you still make the case for big cap tech as defensive? Yeah, I, I think so, uh, honestly, because if you're thinking about financials or industrials or materials, like that's not what's going to pop if, in fact, inflation continues to go down and the Fed at least gives some signs of slowing down. So I think you do want to focus on those quality growth names. I still really believe that you're going to see a reduction in earnings expectations for next year, even with the reduction in expectations we've already seen. So I think you want to be in those names, like Dan said, that have already seen that multiple compression that are going to be able to maintain some semblance of earnings growth. I, I really think that's that's where investors are going to be looking for value uh, as we move into the end of the year here. All right, we've got a news alert out of Viking Global, the fund making some big buys in the latest quarter. Leslie Pickers got the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, Viking Global, one of the few firms that we've seen so far with their 13Fs in the 2Q, uh, making significant buys, uh, more than doubled its stake in Meta to hold nearly half a billion dollars worth of that stock, bumping up its stake in Block by more than 1,000% to hold about $344 million at quarter end, boosted its stake in Boeing by 350% to $190 million at quarter end, Take two, similar story, up by 240% and nearly tripled its stake in Dollar General during the quarter. We also just moments ago saw third points filing come out. If you recall, that has been kind of the story today with its renewed interest in Disney. The firm did get out of its Disney stake, at least according to its 13F filing from the first quarter. Now we're seeing 1 million new shares of Disney during 2Q. That's worth only about $94 million Knowing Third Point, knowing Dan Loeb and his activism, it is likely that the firm either holds beneficial uh, exposure through derivatives or things that don't have to be dis disclosed that make that stake worth much, much more, or they had purchased more Disney shares in the six weeks since these filings came out. But nonetheless, seeing some disclosure, a new disclosure on Disney, uh, which makes sense since we saw that letter today urging some potential changes, some suggestions at Disney. Melissa. Leslie, just to be clear, the third point filing um, is as of the latest quarter. I, as I understood it, he had accumulated his stake after the earnings, which happened in July, right? Right, right. So this, he clearly acquired something in June, which mm -hmm. uh, this, that's what this 1 million shares is. So he did start to at least dip his toes in um, in June, according to this 13F filing. The earnings themselves boosted it from there. We're not sure exactly what form of exposure right. he has, uh, just based on uh, what's publicly been disclosed thus far. Got it. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker.
covering all the 13Fs flooding in at this point. Um, Guy, I feel like the world has changed since June 30th. Uh, so a lot of these things that we're reporting right now, these guys could be out and, and in the green on them or in the black. And so, you know, which one do you like, though, still? Yeah, it's interesting. The one I doubt they're out of, I mean, listen, I'm probably talking some of the things I've said before, but Dollar Gen sticks out to me for, for reals. They report August 25th, I believe. Jeff Mills has talked about Dollar Tree, Dollar Gen as well. It's been lower left, upper right pretty consistently for quite some time. And although it's probably a tad expensive on valuation, I mean, this is a company that seemingly delivers every time. So I'll let Tim talk about Boeing. Maybe Dan talks about Facebook. But I think Dollar Gen to me is the one that sticks out. All right, coming up, good prognosis and some healthcare stocks. The general eyeing a potential comeback in this space. His top picks are next, plus crude cooling off the summer. But could a perfect storm cause prices to surge? We're drilling into the energy trade ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the XLV ticker, uh, ticking higher to start the week. The ETF that tracks the healthcare sector is now just 6% of its 52-week high. And according to Mills, the healthcare space is also home to some of the best charts in the market. Jeff, talk us through some of your favorites. Yeah, I think that's true. And you've seen this part of the market struggle a little bit lately, but I think it's primed for a comeback. If you look at the XLV, it's sort of in no man's land, but, but some interesting things going on with individual names. So, you know, number one in big cap pharma, there is this divergence between, you know, say a Pfizer and a J&J, which kind of look like they're breaking down to me, versus a Merck and a Lilly. So let's just look at Merck and Pfizer, for example. Merck to me just looks like a much healthier chart, sort of this multi-year base above the 200-day moving average, recently broke out above the old highs versus Pfizer, which it looks like could be rolling over to me. And Merck also has valuation on its side, in my opinion. I'll just throw out two other names quickly. Danaher is a company I've talked about a number of times. Love the business generally, love the business for this market. And I really like the chart too. It held that 250-ish dollar level. 
It broke back above its 200-day moving average very recently. It broke above the old April high from this year. So I think you can play the momentum there. Uh, and then the last one is Humana. Uh, just a really good-looking chart, sort of this multi-year consolidation. Nice, steady uptrend above the 200-day moving average. Recently broke out to a new high. So you can go down a very long list in healthcare and find some really good charts in what has been a challenging market. So uh, I'd encourage people to take a look there. So I, I agree with Jeff on the fundamentals. I, I, it's interesting because healthcare, you'd think in, in the market's transition over the last six to eight weeks, all this that we're talking about, the market outperformance, healthcare should be underperforming. It was very defensive. It was a place where, you know, a lot of big cap pharma, first of all, great balance sheets, decent dividend payouts. Um, and I think that's really what's gone on with Pfizer uh, and, and some of the names that I think are, are as steady as she goes. I'm long j and I'm long Pfizer. I don't do anything. It's the IBB breakout that's interesting because, again, you're talking about uh, the biggest names in biotech. So it's, it's, you know, you're not reaching too hard into the spec land in terms of balance sheets. Obviously, these are companies that have done nothing for a long time. And this breakout above the 200 broke through that downtrend around 125 and 128. And I think it's very interesting. We're going to talk, I, I think, about Moderna later on in the show as one of those companies that's had a massive move and it still might be interesting. I think it is based upon the cash they have in their balance sheet. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. All eyes on energy. Oil prices cooling off, but are we just one big hurricane away from another surge? The traders drill in next. Plus, ready for retail earnings? Big names gearing up to report. And options traders are eyeing one name that could be in for a retail rally. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. WTI crude sinking to its lowest level since early February on the back of worse than expected economic data out of China. The headlines igniting fears of a slowdown in energy demand. Oil stocks slumping along with the commodity. Major refiners like Valero, Chevron, Exxon all down sharply, so the price is now well off their highs. Could consumers see even more relief at the gas pump? Let's bring in Patrick DeHaan, head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy. Patrick, great to have you with us. Have have we seen peak gas, um, gas prices? Uh, you know, I think for now, we, we may have seen prices bottom out. Uh, obviously, oil prices last week took a bit of a jump, but even uh, wholesale gas prices last week moving up even more dramatically. And so for now, the national average seems to have stalled out at about 392 a gallon. Now, today's drop could start uh, some more decreases, but with hurricane season still active, uh, it's certainly just a matter of time before whatever happens in the markets today, if it sticks, uh, get sent down to the pump. So I wouldn't look for much more relief across the country. Certain areas, the West Coast, the Rockies, the Northeast, I think gas prices in those regions will drop more uh, noticeably in the week ahead. But areas of the Great Lakes, we are already seeing prices going up in Ohio, Indiana, and in Michigan. What are we factoring in for hurricane season in terms of the impact on gas? Well, it certainly could be sizable. Uh, obviously, it's been a pretty quiet hurricane season thus far. Uh, although still projections to be above average. 
we're all really contingent on what hurricanes could do in terms of entering the Gulf of Mexico. That's the very si uh, very sensitive area. A category three to five storm could still cause gas prices to jump 25, maybe even 50 cents a gallon if we get another Harvey or, uh, or Ida. So we're not out of the woods by a long shot with the peak of hurricane season still about two weeks away from starting. Yeah, Patrick, I'm not asking you to play stock market, but it seems like with the sell-off, the refiners still sort of hold all the cards here in terms of just where the spreads are and just in terms of capacity. Can you speak to that? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of this year has been at the refiner level, their ability to produce enough fuels in light of the fact that refining capacity in the U.S. has been trimmed by a billion barrels since 2019. So if refiners continue discipline, especially in light of the summer driving season, which is wrapping up, refineries may start going into maintenance mode in the fall, and that could keep supply constrained going into the winter. You know, Patrick, when we think about demand destruction, we typically think about a price, you know, a price point at which the consumer will pull back. And I'm wondering how you factor in a prolonged period of high gas prices and at what point in that scenario we hit or we see demand destruction. Well, I think it all can, uh, can certainly depend on the economy as well, the health of the economy. We saw a very resilient consumer this summer. $5 a gallon did cause a low level of demand destruction, but against a backdrop of economy that was reopening after COVID. Uh, this year's $5 a gallon in terms of demand destruction, uh, we could see similar demand destruction next year when prices are lower if the economy is doing poorly. So it's certainly a factor this year. We did not see record high gasoline consumption as a lot of motorists still got outside. There was a level of pent-up demand from COVID, but a lot of that was destroyed because of the high price. And moving forward, I think the bar is going to be lower uh, where we hit demand destruction. That is, consumers may not be resilient in an economic slowdown to pay the high prices that we have this year. Patrick, thanks a lot for your analysis. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So how do you how do you think about it, Dan, especially we're going to get reads from retailers yeah. that has been an impact not only for the consumer, but for the retailers themselves when they're dealing with shipping costs? Yeah, I actually think it's probably less demand about consumers driving because everyone needs to get themselves to their job and that sort of thing. But I really do think it means like what does it mean for other discretionary purchases that they might not be doing in that regard? And I'll just say this. That guy was really good. That gas buddy yeah. over there, um, you know, go back to Q4 of 2018 when crude oil topped out at like 77, 78 bucks. Remember, we had that kind of global growth scare and crude oil went down 45 percent the stock market went down 20 percent crude oil went down 45 percent which is pretty shocking in a way and then it really flatlined in the 60s all of 2019 when we were still averaging gdp about two two point two percent or something like that so to me i don't see a strong case for for oil much higher than and, and i get it and and but i don't see what has changed at all about the global oil supply dynamic i, I think and if you listen to saudi arabia they say that they're going to be ramping up supply right now we've we've taken quotas within OPEC and OPEC plus back to pre-COVID levels, yet they're still two and a half to three and a half million barrels short on oil. So the energy security dynamics that are going on, and we heard this from oil companies, um, oil companies are going to continue to pay out dividends, uh, increase cash flow and pay down debt. That's why the XLE has outperformed mm -hmm. the, the, you know, Brent or crude or whatever your benchmark is significantly over the last month and through an earnings season where I would go back to just the, the, the soapbox I, I stand on. Is it a soapbox or it's a pedestal? Or I, it, these companies are run better uh, and they're run for equity investors for the first time in probably 15 years. And that's why I think you could actually own them here. And I also don't think it, I don't think oil prices can go down a lot from here. Jeff. 
Yeah, I agree with Tim. I think overall this pullback is an opportunity. We knew things were overbought there. We were all talking about a pullback in these stocks. But just to underscore Tim's point, you know, oil making new lows, but XLE versus S&P 500 not. I think we put together a chart. You can look at it and see the divergence. You know, XLE versus S&P 500 basically flat since the end of June as oil continues lower. We saw the same thing in November, December of last year. So maybe that's the sector sort of looking forward and saying, you know what, we don't think the commodity has much more downside. So I look at stocks like Exxon, Chevron. Uh, I think they're cheap here if oil stays where it is. And I think that that's probably a pretty good bet. You like Refiner's Best guy in the space? I do. And vo- yeah, Valero's going from 146, which it probably shouldn't have been that quickly, down to 104. It's bounced. Had a rough day today. But you, know, you look at where the refiners are and how well they're operating and the season we're about to get in, I think refiners for a trade here look really interesting. I think Valero's top of that list. Coming up, is this a dream come true for Disney? Activist investor Dan Loeb getting in on the House of Mouse, the streaming spinoff he is pushing for ahead. But first, a big week of retail earnings on deck, and options traders are piling into Walmart ahead of results. How they're playing the name? Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the big slate of retail earnings on deck this week. Walmart is up to bat before the bell tomorrow, and options traders are betting that the retail giant could report a big beat. Mike Coe has the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Yep. So Walmart right now implying a move of about 4.4% by the end of the week after they report earnings. It traded well over three times the average daily options volume today, and the busiest options were the August 140 calls. We saw over 20,000 of those trading for an average price of about 77 cents. Buyers of those are obviously betting that the results will be good and the stock is going to rise above that strike price after earnings. And that would represent a move of a good size by the end of the week. And I'm hoping they're right because we're long the name. <laughs> uh, Guy Dami, what do you think? I mean, Walmart and Target, you would think that they would deliver because they missed so much the last quarter that they have to. They have to, but if they say something like, we're working through our inventory problems, we're happy with that, back to school looks to be better than we expected, um, the consumer health they speak of, yeah, you can get that move to 140. I just don't know how that can happen given the catastrophic levels of inventory they saw. But look, if Mike says 140, I'll buy that, but I will tell you, 140, that's past support becomes resistance. I think if it gets there, that's probably going to be about the extent of the move. Do you remember the word Bill Simon used uh, when we had him on shortly after? Apocalyptic levels of inventory, Jeff Mills. (laughs) What do you think of how Walmart and Target are positioned here? Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I don't know that you're going to see a quick turnaround in the inventory issues. I want to hear about margin pressures. I think all of that's going to be you know, really telling. And remember on Friday, I talked a little bit about how these stocks tend to perform. So there's sort of the near term and then there's the longer term picture. Uh, And remember, Walmart, if you go back through the last number of recessions since 1980, uh, it's actually outperformed the broad market by 25 percent. So we have all these issues. We're working through them this quarter. But if, in fact, we do go into an economic contraction, Walmart is actually a stock that tends to perform pretty well. I will say quickly, though, about Target, you know, obviously a lot of the same issues, but I think there's more of a margin of safety there. Both of those stocks were trading at about 20 times in February. Now Target, five PE turns cheaper. So uh, I think you can play that name with a little bit more certainty relative to the valuation. But um, we'll see. The quarters will be telling. 
You own both, Tim? Yeah, and that was the trade for 2021, is to own Target over Walmart significantly. And, and I do think that the valuation dynamic, I, I, I think both Target and Walmart, and so therefore maybe you jump to Target, although I, I, I have a bigger position in Walmart. I, I just think the punishment here on inventory dynamics, which I think are temporary, yes, uh, they're not systemic issues for the companies. I, I still think, and as Bill Simon pointed out, also in one of those, those segments, they're, they're the most sophisticated retailer in the world. I, don't, I just don't see it. And the way these stocks were punished um, relative to the dynamic, it may just be same store sales in the U.S. in 23 are, are really what it comes down to. But these companies, I, I think, uh, I've been overly punished. I, I'd be long here. He also said in a subsequent interview that he'd take Target over Walmart, which I thought spoke volumes. Dan. Yeah, I I was really surprised when when Walmart pre-announced, and we we have not become accustomed over the last 20 years or so to negative uh, Mm pre-announcements like that. The stock gap down like 10% and then filled in the gap within a week or so. And I think it just kind of tells you, Mel, you and I were looking at it when they teased that Doug McMillan is going to be on the show tomorrow morning. You know what I mean? It's probably going to be okay. You know what I mean? He's (laughs) he's not going to come on and lay a big egg there. I mean, that's just my two cents there. So even if it's just like we're working through this stuff, but we see some signs of light as it relates to the consumer, it's probably not a bad idea. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe from Options Action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, full steam ahead. Full stream ahead. A lot of news out of the streaming space today. So what's it mean for your investments? We're breaking down all of today's headlines next. Plus, our trader's choice just moments away. The big cap comebacks that may still have more upside ahead. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney shares jumping after Dan Loeb's third point revealed a new stake in the company. The activist suggesting the media giant spin off its ESPN business. Loeb also wants Disney to cut costs and amp up buybacks. Disney responding in a statement by saying, we welcome the views of all our shareholders. As our third quarter results demonstrate, we continue to deliver strong financial results. The letter continues to point to the company's content offerings and distribution ecosystem. For more on Disney and today's other streaming headlines, let's bring in Joe Marchese of Human Ventures. Joe, great to have you with us. What's your take of, of Loeb's proposal? I, I mean, it's it's very interesting, uh, especially the latter two parts um, on Disney and Hulu, or sorry, ESPN and Hulu. Um, the ESPN part in particular is, is pretty interesting because while a lot of the streamers are focused and they don't deal a lot in sports, a lot of the platforms, Amazon, Apple, Google, are getting into sports rights. And so you can look at this two ways. One, that means sports rights are going to go way up and Disney should, you know, is looking at getting out of it or should be. Uh, but the other side is to say that these new streamers think sports are important to reduce churn. And and, and one other point on that I'd, I'd think everyone should understand is that sports are the tentpole when it comes to advertising at these major media companies. Like I think 15 or more of the top 20 live events on TV were sports, were the NFL alone. So so there is knock-on effects to getting out of the sports business, as I think some people should be thinking about. Joe, how should we think about these other media companies, though? For instance, we've seen some massive unwinds, right? AT&T and and Time Warner in such a short period of time. And you just mentioned these big tech platforms that have huge balance sheets and huge moats and huge incentives to keeping people on their platforms. Will we see a lot of these media companies kind of divest a lot of these assets because they can't keep up in, in, I guess, uh, you know, spending on content, whether it be sports rights or original content? 
Well, I think all of the media companies are are a little bit different, and and it is something that's been universally true in the media business in these large conglomerates is that most of the companies that are in the media business that isn't where most of their profits come from. Um, Disney has a machine that turns uh, content into IP for parks and cruises and merchandise, and Apple, you know, their streaming service is part of really just a rounding error to them selling phones. Amazon sells everything. Even NBC Universal, its, its profit center is in the cable and delivery of internet. Um, so even while AT&T divested off, you're seeing a, like a consolidation still continuing to happen with Discovery Warner uh, and Paramount, uh, which was Viacom CBS. And I think today you saw the news, even with Paramount, going into the uh, business with Walmart, with uh, Walmart Plus, realizing it needs to be part of other bundles. Joe, just to underscore what you had said earlier, it sounded like you're saying, to me at least, that uh, that should Disney spin off ESPN, that it could really impact negatively advertising in other parts of the company. Um, is, is that what you're saying? And, and, you know, if Disney is trying to move away from advertising in some respects, then does that really matter? Well, I mean, I'll take the second part first. I think everybody's saying they're moving back towards advertising. Even Disney right. Plus has said there mm -hmm. will be an ad tier coming. And and I think the advertising ecosystem for the big guys, for the for the Disney's and NBC Universal's, is really the largest advertisers in the world. Whereas the, the ones you've seen some weakness in, in some of the earlier platforms, Snap and Twitter, uh, that are reporting are the long tail of advertisers. So I think there's a lot of health and a lot of margin in the big advertisers. Now, that said, the letter did point out um, uh, from Loeb that maybe they could strike deals that were commercially advantageous and they don't need to own the sports channel. So depending on who they spin ESPN out to, perhaps Disney could keep the ad sales rights and sponsorship rights because the sponsorship of sports drives the sales of 30 second spots year round and it's billions of dollars. All right, Joe, great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Joe Marchese, um, one argument for spinning out, uh, Guy, and I think you've made this argument yourself a couple of times in the past, at least, is that then it could go down the road of sports betting. And I'm wondering if you think that would be the thing to do, um, seeing where sports betting is right now. Look, I think at one point they would have given away ESPN for nothing. And then obviously they got that lifeline in the form of exactly that sports betting. So. I think if they do spin it out, they're in a position of power right now, so they should be entertaining offers, but I don't think they need to do anything necessarily. Disney, to me, has turned the corner on a number of different levels. I think Tim can speak to this as well, and we've been talking about it for a while. I was shocked that it got below 90, but I'm not shocked here, and I think a 25 multiple, which historically for Disney is reasonable, especially uh, in this environment, which people seem to be paying up on the $6 they're going to earn. And I think you're looking at $150 stock with or without ESPN. I, I agree. And, and so if you look at the stock and when it began to accrete to the streaming business and the revaluation and the multiple re-rating, it, it just and, and that Disney is still growing significantly now, even more so than Netflix in terms of subs. And but it is a sum of the parts. And if you look at these last numbers that we got international and parks, I mean, they just knocked it out of the park. And it gets back to what Joe is emphasizing I me. Mean, Disney's core business is, is that they are a consumer products company on some level and an experiences company. And that's why. I just think Disney uh, is overly punished in the media wars when you actually lose sight of their core business. Coming up, big caps, big moves. After huge rallies off their lows, are some of these names still worth a buy? Our Trader's Choice is next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out some big cap names rallying hard from their 52-week lows. PayPal, Netflix, Ford all jumping more than 50%. Etsy up 76%. And Dollar Tree up a whopping 97% from its low. So are any of these names still worth a buy? It's a trader's choice. So General, we'll kick it off with you. So I've talked about a lot of the, the ARC names. You know, they don't have free cash flow. They're not profitable. They're not considered quality. I think PayPal is the opposite, and I think it's sort of the profile that you want in this market. I would prefer PayPal at a 22 times multiple than, you know, a lot of other things that are maybe trading more cheaply but are more reliant on future growth. And I just think, I think Elliott's involvement is a good thing with the cost management, looking for growth in other areas. The company's already doing that themselves. So if you own the stock, I think you can hold it. I would say loud and clear that I don't think you need to change it here. You're approaching resistance at that 126 level. But, you know, I do think that this is a stock with fundamental characteristics that you can buy here and do well over the long term. Tim? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and I'll go with Ford, though. Uh, Jim Farley, Georgetown's Jim Farley, who's been talking lately about job cuts, like a lot of other CEOs, is also reiterating their guidance and reiterating that they're going to increase uh, that quarterly div and reiterating a lot of things that people didn't think Ford was going to be able to do. So to me, even after a 50 percent move, and as we say all the time, you make the most money when things just go from terrible to kind of bad. I don't think you have either at Ford. I think you have the environment that changed. Uh, but even after this move on a trailing basis and you say, so what? Well, um, you know, six and a half times on a forward 12 month where I think you have very conservative estimates. It's around eight and a half times. And I think that's something you can own here even after this kind of a move. In fact, if anything, we've gotten more data. Uh, and I think that's what you needed to hear. You like PayPal, right, Dan? Yeah, I do. I bought it a couple yeah. months ago here. And, you know, again, some of these things, these these rallies, they seem a bit like, you know, kind of, you know, hair raising a little bit, but understand where they've come from and the potential for them. You know, a company like PayPal, if it were to expand greater overseas, there's just so many things there. I, I really still like this one. Was that your trader's choice? Or no, mine was Tesla. Okay. Um, so, Tim, you've been gone for a week. So <laughs> yes. nothing's, what no, happened? nothing's really changed on okay. Tesla. Um, I, you know, the, the stock is up 50% from its lows just a couple months ago. I just want to put some context. That, that is like $450 billion in market cap. And the only thing that's happened is that they had slightly disappointing numbers. And as far as deliveries, probably less than expected just a few months ago for the year. I just don't. I just I'm think the stock is really. So it, you want to buy this? No, no, I don't. Uh, so, so Sandy, our, our producer, said you could fade it. It's oh. like trade or fade it. Oh, oh, yeah, I mean, I, it was Trader's Choice. Oh, you so weren't on the call? You, yeah, yeah. He said I was on the air. I was not on the call because okay, I was sorry. on the air. So he said I could fade it. I'm fading it. And they have this three-for-one stock split next week in AI day. I think it's going to, you know. I thought it was upside-down day because I knew you were fading anyway. this one. Anyway, guy. Sorry. Guy. We're, we're light on time. I mean, yeah. I'm just letting you know. Etsy, you'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. It's up from 67 Etsy's only trading at five times revenue. I think it deserves better in this environment, despite the fact that it's rallied significantly. I think it can double from the recent lows, which would make it a $134 stock. I think Etsy goes higher. I played the game correctly. Up next, final trade. Final trade time, Jeff Mills. One of those healthcare names, Danaher, keeps moving higher. It's above that 200-day. Great management, recurring revenues. That's what you want right now. Guy. You also want Valero, sister. Tim Seymour. Yeah, Disney, one of those names also we could have put in there up, I don't know, close to 35% a month. But this bid from uh, third point, interesting. The fundamentals hold up. Danny. Yeah, uh, PayPal. I'm going to stick with it, Mills. I'm going to Venmo you some cash. So you can put some stuff behind you in that office there of yours. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast. See you back Appreciate here tomorrow that. at 5. <laughs> Matt and Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 